Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and how the built environment influences our work and the quality of our lives. The great Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci stated that all our knowledge has its origin in our perceptions. Therefore, perception and place are integral in the making of art. In this episode of On Cities, I will be speaking with acclaimed artist Gonzalo Juanmayor, whose intricate charcoal drawings and mesmerizing large-scale installations skillfully explore the complexities of place, identity, and the interconnectedness of cultures. His mastery of chiaroscuro creates an ethereal atmosphere that draws the viewer into a surreal and dreamlike world, while providing a powerful commentary on history, heritage, and social constructs. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to tell you a bit more about my guest. Gonzalo is a Colombian-born, Miami-based artist. He received an MFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and a Bachelor's in Fine Arts in Fine Arts and Art Education from the School of Visual Arts in New York City. He's been the recipient of multiple awards, including a Krasner Foundation grant and an Elias Creator Award. He's exhibited in numerous solo and group shows in the United States, Latin America, and Europe, and his work is part of a variety of private and public collections, including the Perez Art Museum in Miami, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the Cornell Fine Arts Museum. He's represented by Dot 51 Gallery in Miami, Dolby Chadwick Gallery in San Francisco, the Fernando Pradilla Gallery in Madrid, and El Museo Gallery in Bogota, Colombia. Welcome to On Cities, Gonzalo. It brings me great joy to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. Gonzalo, you were born in Barranquilla, a city on the northern coast of Colombia, and it can be said that you are a child of the Caribbean. How would you describe the world of the Caribbean to those that are unfamiliar with it? Wow, that's a uh, interesting question. I think the Caribbean, um, the Caribbean is a is a, a a weird place where I think reality and 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 magic converge constantly. There's a carefree uh, nature uh, being in the Caribbean. And um, it's always free-flowing. Garcia Marquez used to say that whenever he was in the Caribbean, his whole body would uh, assemble in a, in a specific manner that everything uh, helped uh, ideas flow. So he knew exactly uh, where when he was at the Caribbean because his body felt different. So I feel that the Caribbean sort of um, is a state of mind but it's geographically it's it's linked by all these uh interactions with reality that merge with uh magic at the same time so are you like marquez does your body realign when you're in the caribbean is 
is Caribbean home? Is the Caribbean home? Absolutely. Absolutely. Something happens when I'm in Barranquilla in the, well, I, I'm in Miami, which is also part of the Caribbean, the greater Car Caribbean uh, nation. Um, but ideas flow in a different manner. Um, when I, um, different when I'm in like New York City or I'm in Bogota, um, cities that I've lived at, but it's, it's a different interaction with the environment. And it's not the environment itself, it's the people, the sounds, the, the weather. Um, everything flows in a different rhythm. So somehow I, I feel I'm aligned with Garcia Marquez with that mm. uh, sense of being at home when I'm close to the Caribbean. Yeah, I mean, the, the Caribbean is a confluence of cultures. It's a mestizaje mm -hmm. in the architecture, probably the art, in the people. The people. Um, so I think it does. Um, I think it's somehow reflected in, in your own work that we're going to be talking about in just a bit. Um, Absolutely. But... You, uh, I read mm -hmm. that your parents were both chemical engineers. And so I imagine that both were quite technically minded. But you also come from a notable artistic family of journalists and writers. Your grandfather, Alfonso Fuenmayor, is said to have been one of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's greatest teachers. He recognized an enormous talent in a young Marquez a talent that had yet to be developed, but that he helped nurture through decades of intellectual exchanges. Of course, for many of our listeners, um, they would know that Gabriel Garcia Marquez would go on to win a Nobel Prize and is now one of the most recognized figures in Latin America. I read that when your grandfather died, his library contained over 3,000 500 volumes, volumes that he shared with Marquez and countless other notable literary figures of his time. It was indeed a true repository of knowledge. Do you recall this library? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, I'm, um, I'm, uh, uh, I have fond memories of as a child being, um, It was a, like being Indiana Jones and, and going through all these rooms packed with books. But it's not only the number, but the number of books, but also he knew everything. They had books about uh, art, about uh, French literature, about geography, about so many themes. So whenever I had a, a project at school, my, my dad would send me over to my grandfather and said, well, ask your grandfather. And so he was my librarian and he, uh, we navigated that huge library uh, together. And it was a beautiful memory I have of my interaction with my grandfather. He died when I was almost 17, 18. Um, but it was a beautiful friendship. Um, I remember writing essays together. Um, whenever I had a, um, a Spanish class, they asked uh, uh, to write the conflict of, uh, of a novel. We, we sat together, uh, both of us at the typewriter machine, and he would, I would, he would be transcribing uh, the essays. Uh, while I was dictating him. 
And in the meantime, he was my editor. He was making, I mean, I was learning how to write just by having his influence. So it was a beautiful, memorable uh, relationship. As I hear you describe it, maybe he wasn't only teaching you how to write. Maybe he was also thinking you, uh, uh, helping you learn how to work iteratively. Absolutely. Um, which is what all creative disciplines must learn how to do. Well, it was, I mean, I realized this many years after, like looking back and at those endless nights with my grandfather in front of a typewriter and he uh, transcribing, but also writing all these essays. And I learned so much from that experience. Um, and there's so many things that I learned that I, uh, I acknowledge that I learned them so many years after, which I think it's, it's uh, fabulous to have that sense of space and time with them. And you, you shared with me that the library um, was actually in an old uh, kind of early 20th century yeah. house of uh, those special houses that take place in the Caribbean, you know, that have the great European influences, sort of tall ceilings. Do you think that growing up and spending so much time in an architectural space of that kind in, may have influenced you later? I, I, I think so. Um, I, I, when I was at his house, I was a little boy, so everything was larger than life. So there was a sense of scale that, um, that I, I understood scale and space. Uh, and this is me thinking this over, but, but um, it's a more of a tactile memory of this sense of space. Uh, and perhaps being in that library, in that house, um, has something to do with this this interest in in spatially in how I I draw and I paint. Well, I'm going to dwell just a little bit longer on that early period because um, you shared a story with me that your grandfather took you to interview Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, for a project that you had been working on in school. Yeah. You're quite a lucky student, I would say. Um, you asked Marquez a question about symbolism in his own writings and work. And his answer seems to have both shocked and surprised you. <laughs> Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, so whenever Garcia Marquez came to Barranquilla, he called my, my grandfather. They were very close. And in one occasion, uh, we visited his house in Cartagena. And I was only 12 or so. And I had this uh, homework which, which said, um, uh, what's the symbolism of the rooster in uh, one of uh, Garcia Marquez's stories? So, you know, this. So I came over and said, um, I was, oh, I'm so lucky, Garcia Marquez. Um, I tagged along with my grandfather. They were like discussing other stuff. And then he, he came over and said, hey, I have my, my, my grandson wants to ask you something. And I uh, jotted down the questions the teacher had asked, like, what's the symbolism? And then he said, oh, it doesn't mean anything. And I was like, what? Uh, it's, isn't it supposed to mean, I don't know, uh, destiny or, you know, all these uh, literary um uh, symbols associated with the rooster. And he was very like, 
dismissive of 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 all these symbols oh it doesn't mean anything so it was sort of a letdown in a way i was expecting like a profound answer that i can show off with my fellow students <laughs> and i came back with with nothing um so it was an interesting um how to navigate what the author, what the creator is thinking and making, and then how is that symbol sort of associated and and translated for the reader? Yeah, and so it was an interesting exercise in meaning. How meaning is is created? Yeah, I find that interesting, and maybe that was the greatest lesson. Where oftentimes the maker, you know, is not thinking about the work, the way in which the critic. Absolutely. Or the analyst is thinking about it, right? Um, that in and of itself, I think, is something to always keep in mind. But I also find it interesting because symbolism plays a very important role in your work. I don't think it's arbitrary. And I think if you were asked the same question, I have a feeling that your level of specificity with the symbols would be quite different. But maybe transitioning to uh, your life as an artist, really, when and how did you learn how to draw? Well, I, uh, Carrie, I, 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 I drew all my life. Um, my mom uh, and my dad really pushed my my hobby. It was a hobby. Uh, I was um, I had this interest in drawing from uh, when I was nine years old to eight years old. I drew um, cartoons in my classrooms. I, I, I was always constantly drawing, but that wasn't. Uh, that wasn't sort of a line of work or, or study. It was only a hobby. Uh, my mom, I remember, would buy me colors and markers and papers, and I would be drawing all the time, but not in a serious, like as a way of, of expressing, only as an exercise in manual dexterity and eye-hand coordination. Um, so... I think I started drawing seriously when I started to consider art school and that sort of opened up that world for me. Hmm. Actually, let's delve into that a little bit <laughs> because you moved to New York City um, to study at the School of Visual Arts. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say that had you not moved out of Colombia, mm -hmm you would not have developed into the artist that you are today. Oh, absolutely. So I'm curious to know how living and working in the context of New York City influenced you in the development of your work. Wow. So so I have to, uh, two steps back. Before going to New York City, I, I went to study uh, uh, business administration in Bogota. So I went into business. Wow. Despite the fact that... Um, I was I had a talent for drawing. I love drawing. Um, my my two chemical engineer parents said, "Well, and this is despite the fact that my grandfather was also very artistically inclined and had many artist friends and painters and and writers." But somehow, I mean, my my grandfather passed away, uh, and then I graduated uh, six months after, and I decided to pursue. A business management, business administration. And my dad said, uh, I wanted to become an, go into advertising, a place where I could um, have this creative um, interest of drawing and then also, you know, the market thinking uh, of the consumer. And so it was like a perfect combination of both interests. 
So he said, he suggested, hey, instead of going to advertising, why not go into business and then go into marketing? And then down the line, you could do advertising. And said, well, that seems uh, a logical uh, compromise. Let's do that. I went into um, business five for five for two years and a half, and I stumbled upon accounting, and I, I flunked uh, twice, and that was a big um, red flag that this is not my destiny. I wanted to become an artist. So while I was studying uh, a, a business, I was. I started drawing on my own, painting, learning how to paint. So when I decided finally to say to uh, come out of the closet and said that I'm, I have to become an artist, I can't do this any longer. He, uh, in a very wise decision, he supported me. He said, "You know what? Go to New York City or to Europe, a place where art is important and and where you can really explore." Um, that line of work. So I came to New York, I remember January 17th, 1998. And it had that flavor of, of, of deception of being, of doing, I knew what it felt to do something that wasn't right. Uh, I was depressed. I wasn't, uh, by being in New York city, you mean? No, no, no. The taste of, of, of doing business. Oh, I see. Prior to leaving. Prior to New York City. So when when being in New York City, I had that taste in my mouth and I said, you know what? I'm going to make the most out of this uh, opportunity. And it was amazing. The, the, the city opened itself for me. Um, it was the first time I went to museums. Um, I had a, a, an amazing education by the city, uh, by living in the city. Um, by going to art school and then being on my own and being the driver of my life. And that made the whole difference, the whole difference um, in, in the, in the, it was an inflection point in my life uh, because deciding to become an artist and acting upon it. It's interesting because when you describe New York, you do so with a level of freedom, um, which I think uh, cities like New York um, can offer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also as a result of the design of the built environment, which is what much of this show is about, because yeah. being able to go to school in the city and walk to school and take the train, the city and everything that it can afford you is at your disposal. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that, that the physical context allows you to kind of rethink yourself in the world. Oh, absolutely. I think that the cities that... Uh, offer possibilities, endless possibilities, and New York offered endless possibilities at that time for me. In that in that moment in my life, I could go to theater. I could learn about cinema, arts, performance, film, everything in within the same within I don't know uh, two subway rides. Um, so the city itself opened up for me and. More so, the city allowed a certain kind of um, freedom to explore. Like the city changed with any choice that I made within that city. So it was an amazing experience and it changed my life forever. Well, you know, I think that's a good place to take a quick break um, because when we return, we are going to delve into the production of your work and how 
your extraordinary dry pigment paintings, which is how you described your work, explore the role of context and perception in the making of art. Do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with acclaimed artist Gonzalo Fuenmayor. And for the second half of the conversation, we're going to delve a deeper into the production of his extraordinary dry pigment paintings and how they explore the role of context and perception in the making of art. Gonzalo, right before the break, we were talking about your New York experience mm-hmm. and how this radically changed you as a person and also as an artist. Um, and Upon completing your BFA, you decided to pursue a graduate degree at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. While in Boston, you were surrounded by other Latin American artists whose work explored themes of violence, drugs, kidnappings, I think subjects that are often associated with Latin America, certainly Colombia, And to a certain degree, these were themes that perhaps you were expected to depict. But you turned away from this and you embraced another way of thinking and presenting yourself and your work to others. 
Can you tell us about this? Sure. Well, I was among the only Latin Latin students at at the program, and I um, I was very perceptive in New York. And well, being in the U.S., I was very perceptive of all those ideas um, of of the other. Like, how am I? How do I think I'm perceived by others? So um, the burden that any Colombian artist or the the burden that I had at the moment was to talk about themes, as you mentioned, violence, kidnapping, drug trade, etc. But I was so far removed from that reality that it didn't seem authentic or honest. It seemed uh, that I was playing a role of a token Latin artist speaking of the same themes everyone is, is, is talking about. So I decided to uh, paint bananas instead. Bananas. Bananas. And I started making large-scale banana paintings as um, it were, it were um, large-scale banana oil paintings uh, full of impasto, like very um, gestural bananas. And they were meant to be read as still lifes, but also all the bananas were rotting. So there was a political um, message uh, in in how it, how the bananas were portrayed, I wanted to them to feel like bodies, uh, not so as fruits. So I started this exploration of the fruit itself, and through I, I, I found myself exploring the fruit, and it was a vehicle to explore history, my heritage, my North and South uh, North and South America relationships, economically, politically. Um, my own identity as an immigrant being in the U.S. So the banana itself became an excuse of sorts to explore my own identity as a Colombian living in the U.S. And the banana, because of uh, references to the United Fruit Company, Absolutely. because as a as a as a fruit that is exported, all of these readings, or are there others? Yeah, well. Uh, I was playing off this this idea of the banana republic. I came from a banana republic, a, a term coined uh, by Americans uh, to um, describe Latin American countries. Um, also, the banana has been inherent in like cartoons, people like slipping off banana peels, um, the expression of going bananas, like going, uh, uh, getting, being crazy. Um, so there's so many uh, ways of talking about bananas that I grasped the banana itself as an excuse to make something that felt honest. Um, and doing so, I learned the history of Latin America through the history of banana trade the North and South American relationship, uh, relationships and how bananas were made to be more popular than apples that grew on the backyard. So in order to do so, governments were, uh, uh, CIA, uh, tumblesome governments in Central America, uh, a white fleet was made uh, to bring bananas to uh, the U.S. Uh, fortunes were made, um, Paramilitary groups were funded uh, in order to um, promote this trade uh, between these two uh, countries. So um, the banana became a starting point mm -hmm. 
Um, and slowly the banana has eroded away and ideas uh, around the banana uh, started to become more prevalent, like power, uh, like um, North and South American histories, uh, identity, uh, sexuality became more prevalent as I started using the banana itself in my, in my work. Well, that's certainly the case uh, from somebody observing your work and admiring it. And it has matured over the last 20 years uh, and explores a number of themes that you just mentioned, right? Including a search for a tropical self mm -hmm. and, and also perception, as you mentioned earlier, and even exoticism. Yeah. These themes are beautifully you know, stunningly depicted, in fact, in a piece from 2013 entitled Carmen Medusa. Mm -hmm. um, and this image graces the cover of your book, Tropical Burn, which documents the work you produced while in residency at Ulite Arts, one of Miami's largest organizations supporting the visual arts. Gonzalo, please describe this piece to us. And this is going to be challenging because you are a visual artist, so it you is. will have to verbally describe the piece um, to our audience. So um, Carmen Medusa is, um, is a drawing based on Carmen Miranda. So Carmen Miranda was a Portuguese-Brazilian uh, artist who, um, who was created by Hollywood in order to promote this idea of Latinness and uh, what Latin women would, uh, how Latin women should exoticize themselves for an American public. So she would be very sexy, um, talk with a thick accent, uh, move the hips, uh, very beautiful. And she had um, obscene, um, obscenely produced headdresses of tropical fruit, or tropical paraphernalia that evoked a certain tropicalia uh, vibe. Um, so she was an artist of the 30s and 40s. So what I, I, I use is I, I use Carmen Miranda. I just depict her from the eyebrows uh, up and I make my own headdress. And in this case, Carmen Medusa is, it's based on Medusa. Instead of having snakes, I have flamingos. Uh, sort of trying to hypnotize the viewer uh, and in a way not to pet petrify the viewer, but also but in a way to uh, challenge the absurdity of the headdress itself and um, suggest how, uh, how the tropicalness is engineered in Hollywood of how to portray tropical culture. So it's so just to, to um, sum it up, it's um, a headdress of maybe 10 flamingos um, sort of wandering around as if they were a, a Medusa snakes uh, on top of this headdress of only um, Carmen's eyebrows showing up. Mm -hmm. You know, for those that are listening that are not familiar with, their, with your work, I think it might conjure an image in full color. Mm -hmm. You know, that stunning pink of the flamingo, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know. Uh, but actually, you draw the tropical world in black and white. Yes. In, in charcoal. Correct. So did you embrace that while you were in Boston? What caused that shift somewhere 
around 2008, based oh, yeah. on my oh, yeah. my research of your work, there was a dramatic shift from color to black and white. So, so I was in Boston, and I was making I was making the paintings that were expected of a Latin American artist, or what I thought were expected. So, lots of color, and I would have salsa playing uh, in my studio, loud music. I was dancing. I was personifying the Latin painter per se. And then I, uh, and I was drawing bananas. And then after drawing 30 bananas, I became bored. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, I'm, I want to challenge sort of the cultural expectations of color. And I want to shift in, in, in to black and white. So in a way, I was trying to fight against the symbol of color itself and try to hide myself hide my identity behind black and white because I didn't want to become Colombian or Latin American. I wanted uh, that not to be part of the conversation, despite the fact that I was making bananas and so forth. So I wanted to make it a little bit more difficult for the viewer to enter the work and assess who's making it and who's the viewer and what's happening. Mm. Well, again, for anyone who hasn't seen um, your drawings, I would, or your dry pigment paintings, <laughs> because even though your medium is drawing, you describe yourself as a painter working in dry pigments. Yes. <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't seen your work, um, and perhaps you can describe what you mean by dry pigment paintings, I would highly encourage you to go onto your website. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about a few upcoming shows, mm -hmm. but um, really the work is, um, is, is stunning. But why dry pigment paintings? <sighs> well, this may be like semantics, Carrie. I sometimes, I feel that I'm more like a, like a drawer. I mean, I'm a painter. I'm a painter. I, I, the sensibility that I, when I'm at the studio, I think I'm painting. I'm not using brushes. I'm using my hands, my fingers. So there's a very sensual relationship with the medium. I'm pushing, uh, I'm using charcoal in, in all its forms and I'm erasing as well as I'm adding charcoal. So I'm using charcoal as a powder, as a stick, as a pencil, and I'm erasing also fr that from the surface. So it's a very sensual process, and I I'm a, I'm a romantic as well. So I don't think that I think that when you're drawing, it's a different sensibility. You're describing something. It could be from real life or from within. But when you're painting, you're revisiting that moment over and over again. Um, so the way that I draw, uh, there's so many steps in order to make a drawing. I have to. Um, make a collage, then I have to um, project that into, into big piece of paper. I have to trace it. I have to uh, secure the whites that seem more uh, closer to a painting process uh, rather than a very direct drawing process. But that's my own, my own uh, um, ongoing conversation about where does drawing begin and where does painting mm. begin. But um. I feel myself that I'm making paintings. Mm. 
there's a, a, a great physicality in the world. Absolutely. Having been to your studio, I can attest to that. But actually, maybe we can linger a little bit longer on the question of process. Mm-hmm. Whenever I speak with um, artists like yourself, I, I love to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the creative process is mysterious. And mm-hmm. even if it is described, it can be it can never be fully understood. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, you described yourself in a text I read. Uh, as a stutterer, mm-hmm. which I was surprised because I never, <laughs> I never, I never um, kind of picked that up. And and you said that both your father and your grandfather, yeah, they also stuttered. Um, so as a result, you have a difficult time improma- improvising, Impro- improvising. <laughs> which makes this live radio program a sheer nightmare, probably. But and this affects the way in which you produce your art. So tell me about that. Well, uh, I have to say about something that my there was a story that my grandfather used to stutter even typing uh, on his typewriter. <laughs> so imagine that. Uh, yeah, I come from a history like a, a, a family of stutterers, and improvising uh, was also always a challenge. Um, and I've it's a muscle also. Uh, so uh, this conversation, I, I know it's live, but it's it's been a muscle that I've been. Um, you know, practicing a lot to make it uh, seamless, my my stuttering. Um, so I think that my stuttering has to do with the fact that I have to be ready. There, have, there has to be certain protocols in place before I dive in into making uh, my work or anything. Um, I think when I go to the studio, there's so many different processes, part of the creative process. Uh, my creative process, which is there's a moment where I think of an idea and it could be watching a TV show, uh, going to a movie, uh, driving my kids to soccer practice. It's it's an eureka moment. And I have um, uh, my notebook always beside me when I have, when I go outside just to jot down information. And then that gets processed in a different moment. Uh, at my studio, I, I make an image, find an image, find uh, sort of images that are pregnant with meaning or with with uh, with something uh, that may cause uh, a disruption in the way uh, images are perceived. And then there's the process at the studio, which is very formal, which is I have to draw, I have to trace, I have to. And that's a different space. That's a different moment. In within the process of making the work. So I can see different processes that converge when I'm making a drawing. Yeah. As I listen to you, and I'm not sure if this is the case, um, but do you see the image in its full uh, kind of resolution before you start on the charcoal painting? Um, or as you're drawing, that image changes significantly? I know exactly. This is this is why I think they're more like paintings because I know when I start uh, um, an idea, I know exactly how it's going to look, and I start and I I work on it, and the final product is very close. It's never quite there, and there's always something that is that I, is added through the process that I love, by the way. Um, but I start with that image. There's no improvisation. When I start to draw, let's say a banana, and then it's a dinosaur. 
that never happens. So there's also there's always a, a control issue. I'm I'm controlling the outcome at all times. I'm always in control, but I'm all. I mean, besides that, despite the fact that I'm in control, I allow myself to have certain freedoms within that control. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about some other examples because um, your series Tropicalypse, mm-hmm. I hope I said that correctly, mm-hmm. and Empire depict large-scale palatial interiors in decay and juxtaposed with natural elements such as the palm tree. Mm-hmm. And some of these pieces are, you know, the size of a room, you know, the height of a room. They're they're very large-scale pieces. Um, as an architect, I'm drawn to these works mm-hmm. because of their size and their powerful, immersive spatial qualities. Can you describe the idea be- behind these recurring architectural scenes in your work? Because they don't only appear in these two examples, mm-hmm. but actually they, they reappear yeah. time and time again. So, Gary, I have to say that... Um, when I'm been, I've been painting for 20, 25 years, more or less. And I've realized that uh, I'm more about creating an experience for the viewer. So art, the art is not in a, in a specific artwork or in a specific drawing. It's in the moment you enter a space or the moment after you enter the space, that feeling of that memory of what, you've, what you're going to see or, or what you have uh, just um, your scene, your experience. So I'm more engaged about the space itself, how it feels to be in the space. And that has led me to think about scale and exploring scale with these big humongous drawings that are hard to make, overwhelming for the viewer, physically overwhelming because they're larger than life. So you you have a sense of that you can enter the space. Um and also the fact that they're black and white. And in some cases, they they relate to photography. Uh, the viewer doesn't know if it's a photograph, if it's a painting, if it's a drawing. But as they get closer, they realize there's a lot of, I mean, my hand is part of the, part of the work. So this sense of the spectacle, the sense of theatricality is something that is very important for me. And it's a recurrent theme with these larger than life drawings that I'm making, where I want the viewer to have physical relationship with this thing and with this image at the same time. Um, So that's what I want to evoke. And maybe the fact that it's advertising, uh, this past trauma of advertising is, is, has lingered uh, through my artistic practice in the sense that it's about how the viewer feels in the space yeah. is important for me. Yeah, I think that's an interesting um, kind of way of recalling an experience that at the time was negative, but that <laughs> uh, teaches us, you know, the impact of the art, you know, and you're very conscious of that, in fact. Um, but you you draw in incredibly elaborate interiors, mm-hmm. Baroque, mm-hmm. Rococo, drapes, Yeah, you know, gold. You can't see the gold. Because it's black and white, <laughs> but you can see it. Yeah, you can see it. Um, the gil- yeah, it's, it's so why 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 these interiors this way? So I started making bananas, and then I started uh, making a series of where I had uh, banana stains were uh, appeared as tropical 
as, sorry, as Victorian patterns. And then sort of as the drawing of the Victorian pattern appeared on the banana skin, the, the banana was dying. So this led me to this idea of opulence, of, um, of how wealth is, is made, of power. So I decided to focus on where would be where would a room with the with the with the with the most power be at or how can it be described or where would i find this place with, with the most power and i thought about buckingham palace and the height of the victorian era and how and the victorian era sort of was important in the sense that uh the victorian era they wanted to il- illuminate the world with their culture, their wealth, their religion, and so forth. So this colonialist sort of attitude came into came into play, and then the baroque sort of this baroque excessive baroque uh, um, ornamentation sort of allowed me to explore this idea of the the time and the care and the cost of making so many op- opulent. Uh, architectures around the world came where that did that wealth come from and usually it came from um from banana trade from sugar trade so from this whole reality that's not seen that's not evident so i was interested in how are the architecture the heavily ornamented architecture sort of hid all these stories that are, are not told um, so my interest in the Victorian era and the Rococo and the Baroque uh, came from that dissociation between mm-hmm. these two realities of being overwhelmed by by this, the, these spaces, but also ashamed by how that how they were made, and that's not a, that's not seen. That's not that's a reality that's not evident while while seeing and admiring all this. Um, these Victorian um, and Baroque uh, spaces. Yeah. Well, I mean, architecture is always manifestation of the culture, history, and economic forces of a place and a time. You know. So I think in in that way, your work is is incredibly architectural, and it's not by chance that you actually teach drawing at an architect a school of architecture where we both <laughs> are speaking from today at the University of Miami School of Architecture. Um, so I, I, in 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 looking through your work, um, and and again, it was a joy to be able to look through the work. Um, I I was also captivated by your literary references in your titles. Mm-hmm. You know, so the words are important. So, yeah. So not just the visual imagery. We were just talking about these opulent, you know, uh, kind of rococo mm-hmm. interiors, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, words and letters and to a certain degree, propaganda plays a role oh, in yeah. your work. Um, and I once came across a passage about the Portuguese writer Jose Saramago, where he spoke of how he always needed a title for his books prior to starting. He compared the act of writing to that of an empty glass. When he had the title, he understood the empty vessel and could then fill it with the narrative. The titles for your series and for many of your independent works are a play on words. Mm -hmm. Carmen, Medusa, Mm -hmm. Tropicalia, Tropicalis. Are you like Saramago? 
does the title emerge prior to the piece or the other way around? Oh, no, I'm the opposite. <laughs> I, I'm the opposite of Saramago. I didn't know that that quote. I, um, when I read a book, I'm, I have my, my, um, my uh, sketchbook right beside me. And as I'm reading, I find uh, uh, maybe a play of words or phrases that create a dissociation or something. And I jot them down uh on my on my sketchbook and then when i'm when i'm making when i'm at the studio and i'm finishing a work i go back to that page and i baptize my drawings with those random phrases or titles that i find so it's more of a act of um being in a church and baptizing uh my my drawings than rather having the title itself lead the work into a specific place and sometimes and what i'm when i'm baptizing my drawings i'm looking for um tension of how the words and images uh conflict or relate to each other and in a way to find a different different meaning a different space where the viewer can be challenged or not mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and you are a lover of images, but also a lover of literature and words. And Absolutely. so you carry the legacy of certainly your your grandfather with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. so what are you working on now? Well, um, as I was telling you, I think I'm, I've been working on the same work for the past 25 years, but it has different faces. Um, right now I have an upcoming show in September um, and I'm exploring this idea of... Um, it's called tropismos, which is um, heliotropism is how uh, plants uh, move uh, and change and grow uh, depending on where the sun is. So basically, it's it's how um, these world and the and the the fauna and the flora are emerging themselves and and changing with the cultural adaptations they have to make. So. Um, it's black and white. It's a large scale drawings as well, um, but it's it's an extension of 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 going in and and in a in a in a circle with the same themes over and over again. Mm. Um, but they always have a new face. Yeah, truly. And where can someone see this work? Um, for those listeners, you know, we have an international audience. And so um, what are some of the upcoming shows where someone can go see the work? Sure. So I'll have a solo show upcoming in September uh, in Galeria El Museo in Bogota. And I have a solo show coming up next year in March in Galerie Hilger in Vienna, Austria. That's what I've been working uh, for um, this summer. Yeah. Well, two opportunities. Yeah. Two South opportunities. America and Europe. And Europe. Um, so certainly and there'll be listeners out there. And I would highly recommend that you go um, and look at the shows uh, really uh, while the reproductions uh, digitally are um, invocative. Nothing beats the uh, live experience. Absolutely. So um, I guess we're coming to the end of the interview. And I've been asking this of all my guests. Um, Gonzalo, what is your favorite city? And why? <laughs> I think this is this is the hardest question, uh, Carrie. And I link cities with memories. And whenever I try to find that city, it's no longer there. 
<laughs> and I try uh, often to to go and 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 find it. I would say uh, the cities where I've uh, been um, physically um, involved with have been Miami, Barranquilla, and New York. But also when I try to find those cities, they're no longer there. Um, but in my memory, I think the the places where I've grown the most, where I've um, challenged myself and and be and become a different person, have been so crucial. So I would say the space between the memory of those three cities and trying to find them in real life, I think where those three uh, cities merge is would be my favorite city. I think it's a it's a complicated answer, but it's 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 what feels the most. Uh, honest. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful one, actually. And I want to thank you, Gonzalo, for taking time uh, away from your studio to come and speak with me today. I thank you for your work, for your creative power, for your intensity, your curiosity, and for producing these evocative images that are not just beautiful to look at, but that provoke us to think deeply about the themes that you wish us to explore. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. It's been a pleasure. Um, tune in next week when I will be joined by architect and urbanist John Massengale. We will be discussing his work and his latest book, Street Design, The Secret to Great Cities and Town, which he co-authored with Victor Dover. Um, please follow us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please follow us on On Cities Podcast. Thank you again, Gonzalo, and I will see or hear everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 